You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a couple battles heart disease together, keeping your family and pets safe from wildlife, and support for black entrepreneurs and business owners. But first... As the province begins to reopen, or transition as the Premier describes it, the Ontario government is rolling out more support for small businesses as they try to get back on their feet. Just announced this past week, the Main Street Relief Grant will see financial enhancements to help small business owners and employees further protect themselves from the spread of COVID-19. Here to explain is Prabhmeet Sarkaria, Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Reduction. Welcome to the feed. Thank you so much, and it's uh, always a pleasure uh, to be here with you and uh, all of your viewers. Well, and I'll tell you, everybody is listening in York Region. We want to know what financial enhancements you are talking about with the Main Street Relief Grant. Yeah, there's um, with the Main Street Relief Grant, what we've done now is, you know, we continue to transition as we continue to look at ways, you know, across the province to, to open up our economy. We've expanded the eligibility for businesses uh, to be able to cover their PPE costs. So if you're a business um, with 2 to 19 employees, you can now um, uh, use uh, this $1,000 that we provide to cover any costs of PPE when you're, uh, you know, because we want to make sure that businesses uh, have a safe environment to operate in um, and that employees also feel safe. So, uh, it's been a considerable considerable expense on many businesses, and this is just another way for us to, to help support uh, the recovery of, of some of our businesses as they reopen and, and re- instill that consumer confidence. Let's talk about eligibility. So what has to, what criteria must be met in order to be eligible for the grant? So the main criteria around it is uh, between 2 to 19 employees now. Uh, it was originally 2 to uh, nine employees, so we've expanded this uh, to cover significantly uh, more businesses. Um, You know, if you're in the retail uh, sector, you can apply. If you're in the accommodation sectors, you can apply. If you're in the restaurant, uh, food services sectors, you can apply. If you're in the tourism sectors, you can apply. Um, So it covers almost any businesses that have been impacted significantly by the pandemic, and it's really uh, aimed at helping those businesses that have seen significant issues in terms of cash flow, uh, in terms of operational um, issues over the last uh, couple of months. And we look to continue building on these type of supports like the uh, small business support grant that's uh, currently out there that's seen, uh, you know, many applications, over 80,000 applications uh, where businesses can apply for up to eighty, um, up to $20,000 uh, uh, through a grant program as well. So we'll continue to look at ways to, to help and support businesses uh, through this very difficult time. And I understand that personal services, uh, gyms, yoga studios, arts, entertainment, and recreation are also included in this. They have been very hard hit. What do you propose would be some of the PPE, some of the protective equipment that they would need, what they would require in order to open safely? Yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've had many conversations with so many business owners um, in the personal care services, the, you know, the yoga studios, the gym studios that have been impacted so significantly by the pandemic. And, 
you know, this is just another opportunity for them. Uh, you know, for example, if they, you know, we'll, we'll really leave it up to the business in terms of what type of PPE they think is best suited for their type of business. And in some cases, you know, there's uh, more money needed in terms of signage. In some cases, it's more about gloves and, and masks and hand sanitizer. So we do give that flexibility to many of those businesses and being able to operate or use that PPE funding in any way that they think uh, would be helpful to them and their business. So we don't put too many restrictions around it, but we really do, uh, you know, uh, encourage them to, to use it on also Ontario-made PPE. And we've got a great... Uh, 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 directory online, Ontario.ca slash um, PPE that directs you to Ontario made uh, manufacturers of PPE, whether it's um, gloves, uh, hand sanitizer, masks. Uh, that's something that we think is incredibly important to, to really recognize and support as well. Let's you and I just uh, walk into a small business right now, just, just as, as an example. Some of the challenges that small businesses have is the the are the lack of of the ability to social distance and physical distance. Why is protective equipment so important to the the site and the size of a small business? I think one of the most important parts, you know, about reopening um, is ensuring that we reduce the spread or, you know, contain the spread of COVID-19. And I think, you know, exactly as you've stated, in terms of, um, you know, some circumstances where that cannot happen, it is even more important for us to be masked up. It is more important for us to have, um, you know, gloves on, uh, masks on to prevent that spread. Um, and that's what we're really trying to do is encourage businesses. We don't want them, uh, you know, to be held back uh, in terms of from a financial perspective. So we're providing these type of grants. So, you know, no one has to cut corners or no one has to, um, you know, uh, look the other way in terms of being able to provide PPE equipment. And it builds really on, on many of the other supports that we've been able to put out there to, to, to really um, help businesses continue uh, to be op- be able to operate through these very difficult times, and, and I hope and encourage all business owners or uh, those listening to, to you know go on to our website Ontario.ca uh, slash small business to access you know not just the PPE grant but the small business support grant of up to twenty thousand uh, uh, dollars, you know your, your hydro relief, your property tax relief, all of which I think is very essential for these businesses and helping them. Uh, get through the next couple of weeks and the previous couple of months. So you mentioned one of the aspects of eligibility, two to 19 employees. If you, if the company, the small business does have 19 employees, is $1,000 enough? So we try to build really on many of the other programs that, that we've also put forward. This is just an addition to many of the programs that the government has has put out. So when we look at it from a, a cumulative perspective, you know, if Currently, you're in a lockdown or red zone. You can get up to 100% of your um, energy cost cover. You can get 100% of your property tax uh, covered. You can get uh, uh, up to $20,000 uh, in a one-time grant uh, that doesn't have to be paid back to the government uh, uh, for a business. You can get now up to $1,000 if you've got less than 19 employees uh, for PPE equipment. Uh, we've also got programs like um, the Digital Main Street program, which is $2,500 to help businesses pivot digitally um, in what has now become a more of an e-commerce-driven uh, economy, especially during uh, some of the shutdowns and the uh, uh, curbside pickup being the most prevalent uh, option for many 
Um, and on top of that, we also encourage our, you know, our business owners to utilize the supports of the federal government, uh, whether that be the wage subsidy, the, the, the loan programs, uh, or even up to 90% of your rent being covered. So, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, bring uh, around an approach uh, that uh, tries to cover as many businesses as possible and builds on, on those supports uh, to the extent that they can get through these difficult periods and, and really hope to, to help them on their way to, to reopening again. And just to be clear, the Main Street Relief Grant that, that is enhanced uh, in the announcement that you made earlier this week, it's a grant, so it doesn't have to be paid back. And is it just one time only, this $1,000? That's correct. And, and uh, so it's a one-time grant of $1,000. It doesn't need to be paid back, just like the uh, small business support grant doesn't need to be, need to be paid back. And, and also, um, you know, the other programs that the province has put forward in terms of energy relief, property tax relief, those also do not have to be paid back to the government. Those are a recognition of the difficult times businesses are going through um, and understanding that, uh, you know, we're all in this together and, and we need to, to really push through and, uh, and help those businesses uh, given, uh, you know, the challenges they have faced over the past couple of months. I have to ask you this, Minister Sarkaria. Is there, among the owners of small businesses in this province, is there reopening fatigue you know, I've, I've had the opportunity now to, to host over, I think, over 130 roundtables. Many of these business owners, um, you know, they love what they do. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no sugarcoating uh, the difficulties that they've had to go through. Uh, but many of them want to be open, um, and we're working very hard uh, night and day. You know, there's no certain, there's almost, um, you know, uh, just given the pandemic and, and this virus and now the new variants, there is a lot of uncertainty out there. And, and, and I really wish, you know, I had a magic ball, a crystal ball to, to be able to predict, uh, you know, everything. Uh, but we're trying to do as much as we can uh, possibly uh, to help support these businesses through these difficult times. And, you know, we're going to continue to be there. I'm going to continue to be there to, to listen to them, you know, pivot um, and help them uh, through these very uh, difficult times and see how we can support them through this. But I do know that many of them want to be open and we're going to work with them and our health officials uh, to find ways uh, um, and to, to really uh, keep everybody safe and keep the economy uh, going and, and getting it uh, ready to, to go up and going again as soon as possible. And we as proud Ontarians uh, can be encouraged to shop local, support local when businesses, the small ones, reopen. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the feed. The Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Production, Prabhmeet Sarkaria, thank you. Thank you so much, and Always a pleasure. Next, Afwa Ba explores a program that supports black entrepreneurs and business owners. Joining me today to talk about a new federal program aimed at helping Afro-Caribbean Canadians uh, get the resources that they need in order to uh, have a successful business up and running here in the country. I'm now speaking with the Honorable Mary Ng, MP from Markham Thornhill, also the Minister of International Trade and Small Business and Export Promotion. Minister Ng, thank you so much for your time today. Afla, it is always terrific to uh, talk to you, and it's great to be on 105.9, of course, because it is home. I mean, it's your region, Markham Thornhill, 
So it's always terrific to talk to you. Awesome. Represent. Okay. Let's get into it. Of course, we are <laughs> uh, we are talking, of course, about Black History Month and a lot of initiatives, a lot of discussions uh, being made. But, you know, this is a fairly new initiative being done by the federal government, the Black Entrepreneurship Fund. Some may be not, they may not know about this fund and what it's all about. So if you could help break down the details as to what it is and how this will help the Afro-Caribbean community here in Canada. Yes, absolutely. I'm very happy to. Um, the government uh, at the end of last year, uh, so the Prime Minister, in fact, made this announcement, um, the Black Entrepreneurship Program. And what it really is, is there's three parts to it. We heard from Black-owned businesses, Afro-Caribbean businesses, the challenges about getting the support that they need, the mentorship or access to, you know, training or those networks of support to enable our entrepreneurs and black-owned businesses to be more successful. Um, and in that, we created an ecosystem fund. So the ecosystem fund, it just closed in its application. And terrific because I understand that we've got many, many uh, proposals that have come in. So that is very, very exciting. Uh, the second part of this, uh, of this program is what we call a Black Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub. And what's really important here is that we don't have a lot of information or data or, you know, information about whether it's best practices or, you know, or, or the challenge. I mean, we certainly understand the challenges, but, but what, this, what this knowledge hub is really about is about being able to ensure that we have the information and that we are collecting the right information to help public policymakers and governments into the future to make better decisions around funding and around uh, program design and that sort of thing. And then the third part of the program is what we hear a lot from Afro-Caribbean black-owned businesses, which is getting access to capital. You need to have capital to start your business, to grow your business, and uh, and here we have uh, we have a um, a loan fund, and the loan fund here is a joint investment between the government of Canada at about thirty three million dollars, and then we partnered with many of Canada's financial institutions, so the banks and the credit unions, and they put in about $128 million. And what this is intended to do is this is intended to uh, provide funding uh, to black-owned businesses, giving them better access to that capital. But what it really is doing here is helping the financial institutions together with black-owned businesses to understand some of those barriers that is preventing uh, black-owned businesses from getting access to the capital and then finding solutions to that. So very, very excited about this program and, uh, and, and, and the work that, uh, that we all need to do to create more opportunities for our black-owned businesses to be successful. So first off, Minister Ng, thank you so much uh, just for breaking this down. And I, I know I have a personal tie to this myself only because I have a, a bit of a small business background. My mom opened up a small bakery shop in the early 90s. She's still actually going. But I do remember when I was young, remember my mom, you know, sort of borderline being frustrated because she, was, she wasn't able to get that capital that she needed from banks and from other like organizations just to try and keep things going. So she almost, she did it the old school way, basically, of, you know, saving every penny and then using that to sort of move forward. So we've heard this story isn't sort of new. Mm -hmm. We know that a lot of other businesses have gone through their own sort of uh, struggles to try and find their way to build ground and build capital for themselves to be successful. So it's coming at a great time. And uh, we know that the call for applications and concepts, they've already closed. The National Ecosystem Fund closed late December and the Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub closed. So what happens now? If people couldn't get applications in, uh, does this necessarily mean this is close to them? What does that mean for the 
average sort of black business owner? Well, I think that uh, for the black business owner who is looking for access to the loan fund, we are going to be coming out with that uh, very shortly. And that really is about uh, getting access to the loan like the way that you're, you know, like the example that you used with your mom. Around the ecosystem, I mean, it is absolutely terrific that we have received uh, such an, you know, sort of um, so many proposals, which says to me that there are wonderful organizations out there that are black-led and uh, that are able to put a proposal into us that is going to be able to provide a range of business supports, right? Mentorship, financial planning, business training through to their ecosystem. And we're going to make our way through that so that we can select some of those ecosystems. And, and, uh, and, and you know, we're going to encourage partnerships. Uh, we're going to encourage collaboration. But I think that this is, um, you know, this is a very necessary first step. And I'm looking forward to just getting, you know, sort of getting the ecosystem up and running. And um, that will immediately begin to help our, you know, to help build more of that capacity for our businesses and our entrepreneurs. Glad that you mentioned that, that Black Entrepreneurship Loan Fund details to come. So that still hasn't been opened up yet to the general public. So everyone just hold on to your seats a little bit. But on that mm-hmm. note, how do groups and how do individuals then connect with the government um, to be able to access these resources and funds? Many over the years have said maybe they can't get to it because of quote unquote red tape. How will that sort of gap be bridged in order to get from that small business owner to the government to be able to access these resources? Well, the National Ecosystem Fund, the, the, the ecosystem. So let's just imagine that, uh, you know, that you are, uh, you know, you're a business and, you know, you're, let's say you're a youth entrepreneur and you've already actually started a business and it's doing all right. And you want to be able to, you know, to begin to grow or to begin to scale. And you're saying, well, who do I talk to? How do I actually have access to, you know, some mentorship or, how do I begin to, you know, to sort of, you know, get some additional business training so that I can, you know, further grow my business? These ecosystems are going to operate. I mean, they're funded by the government, but they're not operated by the government. You know, that's why we've got this fund. It's to provide funding support for um, these organizations who do work with, you know, these business organizations who do work with, with black entrepreneurs and black-owned businesses. And once we select the recipients of the ecosystems, we will be able to share that widely and they, they will be all across the country. And that work will uh, will begin to help support our, our Black-owned businesses. What are you hearing from the community about this announcement from the federal government? And also, too, um, can people still you know, speak to their local uh, MP about maybe any sort of ideas or questions that they may have about this? Yes, absolutely. You could definitely speak to your MP um, about, uh, you know, about ideas for how to, you know, what we could be doing uh, more of or differently and so forth. We welcome that very, very much. The Black Entrepreneurship Program, I mean, I'll take a step back for a second. It came to be because we were working with organizations, Black-owned business organizations, Organizations, uh, these organizations that already support Black businesses, um, whether it is uh, you know the uh, the Black Business Initiative uh, out of Nova Scotia that has been operating for many many years, um, or the Black Professional uh, Business Association here. I mean you know that operate not only in the Greater Toronto Area but elsewhere, and some really terrific organizations in Quebec. It really was a grassroots effort to begin with that said, look, these are the needs for uh, black-owned businesses, for Afro-Caribbean businesses. These are the gaps that exist, and therefore, we really need the government to, you know, 
were pitching to the government to put a program like this together. So, so the way in which this came together was already with black-owned business uh, leaders and the organizations that represent and work with black-owned businesses and entrepreneurs at the table. So it was really, so it's really exciting because this was designed sort of from bottom up, if you will. And now as we uh, go through these, uh, you know, these, these proposals that have come in, we're looking forward to make the announcements so that those ecosystems can get stood up, you know, across the country and that they begin doing the work of helping and supporting, uh, of supporting our businesses. And then finally, uh, for anyone that wants more information on this program, also wants to keep an eye on what's to come in terms of the details for the Entrepreneurship Loan Fund, where do they go for more details? Well, I think that uh, what we should do is uh, they should get in touch with uh, my office, or if you follow me on social, Mary underscore NG, whether it is on Instagram or Twitter or on Facebook, I always, always uh, put out information that way so that our entrepreneurs and particularly our terrific and amazing Afro-Caribbean black-owned businesses know what is going on and what the, you know, what the update is. And, and through there, we'll be able to provide links and so forth. But um, follow me on social. Perfect. As simple as that. The Honorable Mary Ng, Minister <laughs> of Small Business Export Promotion and International Trade. I thank you so much for your time today and giving me more information about the Black Entrepreneurship Program. Thank you so much, Afwa, and always perfect to talk to you. Coming up, Heart to Heart. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang now with a couple who journeyed through heart disease together. Well, February is Heart Month, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada conducting their annual Heart Month fundraising campaign. And then two people from Milton who have been touched greatly and helped greatly by the Heart and Stroke Foundation, Donna Hart and Barry Saruta, joins us today on the feed. Donna, Barry, how are you both? Fine, thank you. I guess, Donna, we'll start with you. Um, it's December 2014, and you begin to have some heart issues. Leading up into that, had you had any issues with your heart or your cardiovascular system? No, no. So this must have been an absolute shock to you out of the blue like this. Yeah, it was very surprising. I think that's like an understatement, really. It was, it was unexpected. I, I was out of breath, and I thought that perhaps I needed uh, an inhaler to help me breathe. Now, people should understand, you were an avid cyclist, so your cardiovascular, by most people's standards, is probably above normal at this point. Yeah, I was in pretty good shape. Um, yeah, so that was that was helpful. And and Barry reminded me that in September I had been really tired and I'd gotten some iron pills from the pharmacy, sort of self-diagnosing, and um, had taken them for about a week and then felt better. Now, uh, ba- Barry, here's the bizarre thing. Now, while all this is going on with Donna, you are admitted to a different hospital with chest pain. Is it the same day? No, I, I actually didn't have any chest pains. Um, I was. Uh, this was a week before she got her heart transplant, so I believe it was May sixth. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tuesday evening after work, we uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays our club uh, rides along uh, roads in uh, Burlington. 
So we were going up Walker's Line, and I got really tired at the top of the hill um, at Derry, and I just thought I was um, bonked out because I didn't have enough lunch or something like that. Um, so we continued to ride along Derry Road, and I was coming down Bell School Line, and about halfway down, I got so tired, I just had to get off my bike and lay down on the side of the road, which I've never done before. Huh. Yeah. And- didn't feel anything. So from that point, so you're laying down the side of the road. Does someone go, I think maybe we should call for help? Or where does it go from there, Barry? Well, everyone thought that I was just tired. I'm, I'm a, I was a fairly strong rider at the time. Um, and I would say probably two groups of people rode by me, thinking I was just tired. Um, but I, was, I actually went back to pull somebody up to the group. Um, they were falling behind. So what, what you can do is, as a skip, the person at the back of the line, you can fall back and, and get in front of that person and they can draft you back up to the group. So I did that. Um, but when I, we got down to back to uh, Appleby to get back to the parking lot, one of the riders noticed I wasn't there, but the person I was pulling was there. So she came back and to find me and she found me on the side of the road. So she rode back with me back to the car parking lot at 407. Um, and then I ended up... Uh, waiting in my truck for a bit and I drove home and then my daughter took me to the hospital. My goodness. Now, how soon after when you went to the hospital were you admitted to intensive care? Uh, so I got there about uh, 8 o'clock, I remember. I was in in, uh, in the emergency and they kept giving me um, a nitroglycerin to see if my heart beat, blood pressure would come down, but it didn't. And after the second time, uh, so the start, uh, just to back up, it started around Six, quarter of six, um, and then by eight o'clock, um, they had given me two shots, well, two uh, doses of nitroglycerin and said, uh, you know, I, I need to go to the hospital now, so they put me in an ambulance. So I was probably there about 8.30, quarter to nine um, to Trillium, and as I was being wheeled into the, host- into the uh, hospital, they were asking me to sign papers to go into surgery, so I went straight into the surgery and they put two stents in and then I went straight to ICU. My goodness. Speaking, um, speaking to Barry Saruta and Donna Hart from Milton on Heart and Stroke Month, and Donna, your story is no less traumatic and dramatic. I mean, you think about it, everything you went through, this healthy individual in good shape, and all of a sudden you're in line, you need a heart transplant to survive it. At what point did you think, well, wait a second, why me? Why is this happening to me? Um, it's best that you not think that. <laughs> Because uh, it doesn't lead down a good road, <laughs> uh, so I would. Um, when I got permission, because I was inpatient for most of my wait, um, I, I got permission to walk by myself on the fourth floor, Toronto General, and um, I would just think, why not me? Like, why did I think I was so special too? And that really helped sort of my mindset of uh, just sort of turning everything around because otherwise it's 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 pretty it's 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 hard to take in that information yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I've heard of people recovering from a stent surgery or heart attack. I'm not familiar with the recovery to heart transplant. So, what did you go through to bounce back to where you are now after the transplant? Well, it's a, it's. I would say it's a tough 18 months after the transplant. Uh, I started uh, walking. Uh, and I got a walker so I could walk around the block. Um, and uh, then I started riding my bike uh, transplant in May, and probably by June I could ride my bike around uh, the block. And 
eventually was able to do like 14 kilometers, which really, you know, was just starting out for me. Um, and it was easier to ride my bike than it was to walk because you're sitting and you can glide. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was tough. So the medications that you're on are pretty, are very strong. And so it's like dealing with the side effects of the medication as well as recovering from the surgery. And Barry, I would think that for you and Donna, there's been changes in your lifestyle and diet after both of your different heart issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, you, you always think that you eat healthy, but um, thinking back, you know, I wasn't very the best eater. Um, better now, not great, but I'm better now for sure. Yeah. I always had a very good diet. Um, so, like, I wasn't the type of person who would order pizza or things like that. Um, uh, and I guess the the bonus part about that was that all my other organs were in great shape uh, and they were functioning at 100 percent. And uh, so that was what made me eligible for a heart transplant. It was just my heart that had gone in the dump. My cardiovascular system was in good shape. It was just the heart disease. Donna, and I think about this and the message I'm getting from it is if you take care of yourself and stay in shape, if God forbid something like this happens, you have a way better chance of surviving and recovering and thriving afterwards. It definitely will help you get through the rough spots. You're right, Jim. (laughs) And Barry, I mean, there's obviously people listening right now thinking, well, wait a sec, could that be me? Could I be the next Barry Saruta? What kind of message did you have for them if they think they're okay, but maybe they're not? Well, I guess uh, stay active, stay healthy, um, you know, eat obviously properly, um, but the most thing I think is just to be active for sure. Yeah, I know I know. when I turned 50, um, they gave me an AKG for the first time. I was like, I got a little anxiety. I'm like, wait a sec. But they were just checking. And then I felt, oh, okay, maybe it's a good thing to request your doctor every few years that if you get over a certain age, hey, can I get an EKG done just to make sure everything's okay with my heart? Yeah, they can actually see uh, things that are happening, and, if, and and I guess the telltale with us is that if they they take the EKG and then they go, oh, we should do it again. That's always never a good time. And family history, I would say, is really important. And both of us sort of underestimated um, how important family history is. Now, no one in my family had had heart disease, but my uh, like heart heart disease, but my dad had cardiovascular disease, and um, both of my grandmothers died of um, cardiovascular disease, and I had a sister who had a stroke. So, you know, when you start adding that up, you're just kind of like, whoa. But because I ate well and exercised, I really didn't see that as happening to me. You know, my wife and I have been, we've been married over 20 years, and we find the longer we're married, the closer we get together. When, when a couple like you, you two go through what you've gone through, do you find you're closer together now than ever before? I guess we were pretty, we were we were doing stuff together before. Like we always went out once a month. Like we'd go somewhere and do things, and we were riding together. So yeah, I'd say stayed the course. Right on. Well, Donna Hart, Barry Saruta from Milton, you are an incredibly inspiring story, but also a very educational story that just because you think you're fine doesn't mean you might be fine, and maybe it's always a good thing to check with your doctor to make sure you're okay. Uh, thank you so much for educating us and getting the word out for Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. Uh, continue good health, and thank you for uh, your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Take care.
Karen Johnson is next with a modern take on treating mental illness. Dr. Leo Steiner has been helping those suffering from depression and other mental health issues for decades. He joins us next on The Feed. Thank you for being here, Dr. Steiner. My pleasure. Can you tell us a bit about your work over the past years? Okay. I've consulted with uh, social service agencies and with addiction facilities. I've worked for the federal penitentiary system. I've worked in hospital psychiatric units, both inpatient and outpatients. I've taught at university, and I've worked with the Indigenous populations in the GTA. From your experience, how are Canadians coping with the pandemic? Well, globally, I don't think any of us are doing really well, but um, especially Canadians, because, you know, we've got worse weather to, to cope with. And um, we, we have, uh, I don't know why, but it seems like we have greater difficulty um, trying to access um, uh, various um, medical treatments and other sorts of treatments that people use in, in other countries to help them with their depression. Our listeners who are not familiar with what TMS stands for, could you let us know what that is and what is the TMS mandate? Okay. TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's called, uh, it's one of the brands of neuromodulation. It's a way of um, stimulating our brain so that the circuitry works better uh, between what's called the prefrontal cortex and the other areas of the brain. You see, when people are depressed, and you can actually see this on SPECT scans, um, the front of the brain and the emotional areas of the brain are not having a good conversation, and the emotions kind of run wild. They can either be depressed or anxious or angry, and we know where, those circ- where that circuitry is, and we target it um, specifically with this um, magnetic pulsed stimulation, so it's, it's relatively painless, and it just allows enough current under the brain so that those areas are working in an improved way. Most of your female patients are seeing better results. Can you explain to us as to why? Yeah, um, there's two ways of doing TMS, I suppose. Uh, one is to do what's called a medication wash, to take them off their medication entirely. And then the other one is to um, keep you on the medication. And then as you improve, um, you can taper off uh, along with your prescribing doctor. Um, so if you don't go off your medication and you get treated with TMS, we're seeing very impressive numbers. Upwards of about 70 to 75% of the people that we're seeing are getting good response. In other words, half the monkey is off their back. Mm-hmm. Um, half the intensity of the depression or half the symptoms are gone and you, you, know, you feel significant improvement and about one out of two are feeling remission. In other words, it's almost all gone. And based on how many sessions a week, is it weekly? Do you do it twice a week? How many do you have? Or you should be going I, ideally, through? Ideally, it's five times a week for about five or six weeks. And then we like to taper. We find that the tapering prevents a remission or a relapse in the future. Great. Now, do you feel that this technology works for everyone? Um, nothing works for, for everyone, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it's kind of, um, it's a bit of a science to figure out um, if it's f- for, for you, if it's the depressed person is thinking about it, and therefore right. we were, me- were recommending that people get that um, initial consult mm-hmm. to see if it's for that person or not. Is this covered by OHIP? Unfortunately, no, it's not. Not yet, anyway. They're, 
are some serious um, advocates out there trying to get it covered by OVIP, mm-hmm. but it, it's not going to be, you know, in the near future. And of course, we want to remind our listeners to check with their own family physicians, right, before they go ahead with, with the session and so forth? Absolutely, yes. Well, we are in the middle of winter, and as you had mentioned, diff, you know, depression is definitely much more difficult at this time of year. What sort of tips can you give our listeners regarding depression and, and to keep it at bay? Okay, one of the things is that um, this is the time to start being open with friends and um, to take the risk of telling them how you're feeling because in all likelihood, they're feeling the same way. And there's something about socialization, which is actually an opportunity in these times where we weren't paying enough attention um, to our friendships to kind of lean on them now. And also, you know, in a, in a strange way, it's an opportunity as well, because uh, for so much of our lives, we spend most of our time at work and very little time with our family. And now it's kind of the opposite. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to get to know your family and to, to learn some strengths about them and about yourself. That's true. Um, and the other thing, the other thing is, there's there's always a silver lining, and and sometimes you gotta reach way down into your own heart um, to ask yourself, well, what am I living for, and what is this, uh, what is the purpose of my life? Because that rat race doesn't allow us to to have those moments. Mm-hmm. But when you have no choice and you're stuck at home, you you have to start thinking about those things. So that that's that's a benefit, a side benefit. True. And, you know, give, you, let yourself be happy, right? And exercise and take those breaks and, and take a little bit of me time. That doesn't hurt either, right? Absolutely. You nailed it, right? Yeah. Like, and <laughs> and diet as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more. Where are, your, where are the TMS clinics located? Okay. So uh, it's called TMS Clinics of Canada because we hope to expand very soon. But right mm-hmm. now we're at the north end of the city at Steeles and Kiel, but we're getting uh, pretty busy, so we'll probably go into the downtown area uh, very soon. Um, but that's where we are right now, just north of Toronto in the city of Vaughan. And if our listeners want to get more information on this technology and, of course, uh, a little bit of advice from you, where can they get a hold of you? TMSofCanada.com. After the break, a zero tax increase, Richmond Hill's 2021 budget. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. So here was the headline last week on February 10th. Richmond Hill Council approved the 2021 operating budget today with a tax freeze, no service cuts, and continued investment in infrastructure and reserve funds. So with this budget, Richmond Hill now has the third lowest residential tax rate in all of Ontario. Here to explain what it means to citizens, to businesses, and to the future growth of Richmond Hill is the city's deputy mayor and budget chair, Joe DePaola. Welcome to the show. Good to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Anne. I'm very pleased and, and proud to share the good news about our tax rate in Richmond Hill. So it's a property tax rate freeze for the year 2021, and here's what really stands out. No service cuts. How did you do it? Well, we, we absolutely insisted that there not be any services cut, uh, but, but we did want to deliver a tax rate freeze because uh, our, our businesses, our, our residents are, are struggling with the effects of the COVID pandemic. And uh, we knew they just couldn't afford to pay anything extra on their 
property taxes. So we, we were able to accomplish that property tax rate freeze, and we were able to do it by uh, saving over $3 million in extensive operating efficiency. Can you describe some of those operating efficiencies? For instance, tow truck license renewals, uh, everything that has to do with that has been digitized or moved online. What else has been streamlined? Okay, well, the the savings have come from about $1.5 million through the city's reorganization that we did in late 2020. Uh, we, we realized some savings from our technology contracts. We've had uh, other administrative efficiencies. And, and some reductions in our internal programs. Um, the, the Richmond Hill Library has been a, a extremely efficient and, and revamped the way it delivers services. Um, there, there, was, there were savings there. And the city has just embraced a new culture of continuous improvement. I understand that water rates are frozen as well. I mean, maybe in this weather that's understandable, <laughs> but the actual rates are frozen. Is that right, Joe? Yes, this is the first time we've been able to do that. Uh, Richmond Hill's experienced um, quite a a significant uh, increase in in water rates over the the past 10 years. And it was important that we also were able to freeze our water rates as well, Uh, that the region has given us a bit of a discount, and we passed that on to the residents of Richmond Hill. How about this? No increase to recreation fees. How does that work? Very, very important. Uh, You know, it's, it's... it's easy to balance a budget by simply just charging more on our user fees, and we did not want to do that. The council did not increase any of our recreation and user fees. Um, obviously, there is inflation and prices are going up, but uh, we, we've kept our rates the same. And this is, again, uh, so, something that was important to me and uh, very, very proud that we were able to, um, to, to freeze those, those rates for the use of our services, all of our services. I'm no expert, but I would love to know how the taxes are calculated. Okay, and and this is what needs to be explained. Uh, Richmond Hill is responsible for only a a portion of your overall tax bill. It's it's about 30%. Now, the the province also um, charges a rate for school board, and then the region has has about 40% of of your property tax bill is, is controlled by the region of York. So uh, when we speak of a property tax rate freeze, we're talking about the Richmond Hill portion. So the other part that I have noticed in the information that has been sent to me about your budget and all of the magnificent parts of it, the low tax rate means that Richmond Hill residents are paying significantly lower taxes on their homes than similarly valued homes across Ontario. So how does that make sense, dollars and cents? That, that's right, and that, that's really important. Uh, if, if you, you have a million-dollar home in Richmond Hill, you're paying significantly less than a million-dollar home elsewhere. That rate uh, has always been low in, in Richmond Hill versus, versus the value of your home. So it's a, you know, we, we do have homes that are, um, our, our average value is, is higher than in other, in other places, but uh, we don't we don't charge nearly the same rate per assessed dollar that other municipalities do. So more information for residents. Apparently, you send 51% of what they pay in taxes to York Region to fund regional services. What are those regional services? Well, the, the region looks after uh, 
transit uh, for police services, o- overall planning uh, for the region, ambulance services. Uh, we we at locally uh, take 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 care of, of fire, our community centers, and our, our libraries. Your your waste disposal and shoveling the shoveling the road. And imagine the week that we have had uh, leading up to this weekend now that we're speaking, so much snow and so much needed to keep Richmond Hill streets clean and dry and, and safe for people. I'm sure that eats into the budget as well. Sure. Yeah, it's been a challenging year. But uh, two, two years ago, this is the second winter now, we've introduced a windrow clearing program. And that was an, an additional $2 million per year that we've absorbed. Um, so that's really makes it significant that we were able to freeze the tax rate and bring in new services such as the windrow program. So while keeping the tax rate at zero, you also are committed to continuing to invest in infrastructure. Can you expand on that? Well, this is what's really important for, for me, Anne. Um, I, I, other municipalities have created low tax rates that they're somewhat artificial because they've reached into their reserve funds in order to do it. We have not done that. In Richmond Hill, we have not uh, used our reserve funds to get this tax rate at zero. And we have contributed toward the future. We have continued to to um, contribute to our reserve funds for the future. And, and we, we have a $38 million capital budget that goes into the, the repair and replacement of our facilities. Uh, we've improved a lot of our facilities this year and uh, we have those funds available for future years to make sure um, you know, future residents aren't aren't uh, paying more than they should have to. I have to ask you a tough question. I know that you've been finding uh, extensive operating efficiencies across Richmond Hill and valued at about three million dollars. Did any of that mean job loss? Well, we did have to make some tough decisions, and and certainly um, a lot of our operations had been put on hold at various times throughout 2020, and that also meant that we we've, we've had to to lay off some of our employees, and that's never easy to do. And um, it's it's you know something we're we're looking forward to in 2021 as we reopen the economy, as we reopen our our facilities that we are going to be hiring those people back. How has the pandemic impacted your ability to put together such a strong budget for 2021? Well, I really have to thank our finance team in Richmond Hill, uh, David Dexter, our treasurer. Uh, they, they've done a great job. Council insisted on uh, the 0% tax increase and and they've done just, just an excellent job uh, in in me in you know helping to to put that budget document together, and it, it's 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 really a collective effort. Our, our CAO Marianne Dempster has adopted a a way of operating like a business, and and that's what I I'd like to see our our local government run like a business and and really make sure uh, we're being careful with every dollar. Joe, what is the purpose of uh, a 2021 operating budget, as you've just described, a tax freeze, no service cuts, and investment in infrastructure and reserve funds? Why is that important to the citizens, the residents of Richmond Hill? Are you trying to make sure that they want to stay in Richmond Hill? Well, sure, absolutely. We want to 
make make the residents of Richmond Hill happy. As I campaigned in, in the election two years ago, it was the number one thing that and the number one concern. We, we've got a lot of seniors who who want to stay in their homes. Their homes are appreciating in value, and mortgages are paid off. But but the, but that tax bill is going to make the difference whether they can stay in their home or not. So I was continually told that that was important, and I made it a priority. And halfway through this term, we have uh, we've succeeded in what we promised. With the approval of your 2021 operating budget, it puts Richmond Hill in a position to be the third lowest residential tax rate in all of Ontario. Joe DePaula, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Anne. Welcome back. Treating wildlife with respect while protecting your family. Tina Cortez has more. Christy Lehman is the Licensing and Animal Services Coordinator for the City of Markham. Thank you for your time, Christy. Hi there, how are you? I'm good, thank you. But i got to tell you, I'm not sure about you, but I know in my own neighborhood, and it doesn't matter really where you live across York Region, coyotes seem to be more visible now, more than ever. Is that just my imagination? Well, coyotes have always been here. They are highly intelligent, and they are a very adaptable species and they really learn to flourish in our urban environment. June or, or January and February is their mating season, which does cause them to be a little bit more active and more visible. Um, and certainly with the pandemic, uh, people being at home more, taking walks, enjoying the outdoor activities that we can, uh, there has been an increase in sightings. But again, they've always been here in amongst our neighborhoods. Um, so it's not anything new, but uh, definitely there is an increase in sightings for sure. And there's an increase in sightings, you said, because January and February are their mating season. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so they're a little bit more active. They're trying to find uh, mates. They're trying to find dens where they can raise their young. So they are sort of on a search at this point, um, finding a suitable location for their families. And you said they're highly intelligent. Does that mean that they're as afraid of us as we are of them? They absolutely are. In fact, they're more afraid of us than we are of them, actually. So what should you do if you encounter a coyote or if you're out walking your dog or something like that or you're out there with your children? What should you do? The most important thing is not to run away and not to turn your back on a coyote. Um, If you're walking your pet, ensure that they are always on a leash. We do encourage it to be a short leash, no more than six feet. If it is a small child or a small dog, um, we recommend that you pick them up just to be safe. Um, Tips are act really big, put your arms up in the air, make lots of noise, stomp your feet. Uh, You can carry a whistle that you can use. Uh, And umbrellas are very effective. If you pop them open and close a number of times, it does Uh, scare them off. Uh, So those are just a few tips that we recommend for you for sure. You also said um, don't run away from them and don't turn your back. Why is that? It acts more of you wanting to play with them. Again, they're curious animals, so they will chase you if you turn your back and begin to run because they think you're playing with them. Okay. So spring is coming soon, which also means there may be more rats in our midst. What do we do about those animals? What's really important is ensuring that your property is uninviting for rats. 
um, to do this, really get rid of food sources, food sources and shelter sources. So clear your property of waste and debris. This includes pet waste. Surprisingly, they are attracted to that as well. Uh, don't leave food out of any kind. If you have a bird feeder, ensure that it is rat-proof and clean it regularly so that it's not attracting rats or other animals for, for that matter. Uh, and don't leave boxes or large bins outside, containers, because these are perfect places for them to create a nest in. Uh, so really, it's about making your house uninviting for those animals. And we're certainly, you know, many of us are spending a lot more time at home and cooking more at home. So I guess we've got a lot more waste as well, right? That is correct, for sure. So you want to keep it out of the way, you want to hide it away. Yes, and do not put your garbage out the night before. Mm-hmm. Really try to put it out the morning of garbage pickup day. That, that is another huge problem, uh, and it is an attraction, obviously, for them, for sure. Okay, Christy, let's do a recap for our listeners who may be joined in late. How do we deter both coyotes and rats in our neighborhoods? The main thing is to keep your property clean and free from from food or debris scraps. Eliminate all food and shelter sources for them. Practice responsible pet ownership. Keep your property free of pet waste. Keep your dogs on a leash while walking, preferably a short leash. Um, really just keeping your property clean and maintained and uninviting for those unwanted guests. Excellent. And where can our listeners find more information if they need it? You can visit our website at www.markham.ca slash wildlife, or you can call our animal services hotline at one 668 Christy Lehman, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.